This Boss Barista episode is brought to you by Ernex. If you've worked in the coffee industry, you probably know Ernex well. You've used their products to clean your equipment. You've attended an event that they've supported. You're probably even using Kefiza at home to clean your pots and pans. One of Ernex's latest advances is a range of environmentally friendly cleaners called BioCaf. BioCaf products are made entirely from plant and mineral-based ingredients and are fully biodegradable. They're available for both commercial and household coffee equipment, so you can use them at the cafe just as easily as you can use them at home. But Ernex is doing more than just making eco-friendly cleaners. They've partnered with people like me and several other coffee professionals to highlight some of the best sustainability efforts in the industry with the BioCaf Sustainability Series. I'm super excited to be part of this initiative and to have another platform to share my thoughts on topics like sustainability. Visit the Ernex website to read my recent piece on Onyx Coffee Labs switch to oat milk in their latest cafe and learn more about BioCaf by visiting www.ernex.com. Hey friends, welcome to Boss Barista, the podcast about workplace equity and employee empowerment in coffee and beyond. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. Before coffee, Nigel Price was in finance, working for a firm in downtown New York. But then he decided that he had had enough and began working in cafes as a way to break away from the life he built and the trajectory he was on. Over a decade later, Nigel credits coffee as the beginning of his second life, giving him a chance to create connections and bond with people that his life in finance didn't allow for. Nigel spent 11 years learning about coffee before he opened the first iteration of Drip Coffee Makers, a duo of coffee shops in Brooklyn that began its life as a coffee cart serving pour-over coffee. In most coffee shops, pour-overs can be kind of a chore. A pour-over is time-intensive and can take you out of the flow of service. At Drip, Pour-overs are designed to be a focal point, a place for customers to talk to baristas and learn more about what they're drinking. Nigel opened just two months before the COVID-19 pandemic shut down most of the surrounding businesses, and that ended up transforming his new space. As one of the only businesses in the neighborhood that was open, Drip became a respite for people during the pandemic's darkest days, and Nigel noticed that people were ready, even eager, to sit, to wait, and to talk over a slow cup of coffee. Here's Nigel. So, Nigel, I was wondering if you could tell me about growing up with coffee. Did you drink coffee as a kid, or did you see others in your life drinking coffee? I don't even know if you can legally call what my mom would make coffee. It's, uh, <laughs> it was like, but I I do know it tasted super good. Um, it was literally uh, she had like one of these old school percolators, and she would put this pre ground freeze dried stuff in it. But it was loaded up with so much milk and sugar that it was. And for years, I thought that's what coffee was until high school and, and college. And then I see people drinking straight black coffee from, you know, for, from a bodega or from like a Starbucks or something like that. And I'm like, this stuff is horrible. Like, how can you <laughs> drink this? 
you know, um, fun fact, before coffee, it was supposed to be a tea shop because I just never drank. I just never drank coffee. When did you decide that a coffee shop was the way that you wanted to go instead of a tea shop? Um, really quickly <laughs> after like shopping my business plan, um, people thought it was ridiculous to try to open a tea shop and not offer any coffee. And I mean, in hindsight, it's like, duh. But at the time, you know, and I drank a lot of coffee and it just didn't make sense if you were going to be a premium tea shop to even serve coffee because uh, it just, it, it doesn't, uh, to have coffee in a shop, a lot of the teas will pick up the, the, uh, the scents or would pick up on the, the coffee notes and it would get imparted onto the leaves. So I was like, that just doesn't make sense. But the more I looked into it, and, and then at the time there was a ton of, well, not a ton, but a couple, a handful of tea shops in New York I would go visit. Then the next time I would go visit, they'd be closed. So the, just, your proof of concept was there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, um, if you call something a tea shop, uh, people just will not go. But um, right. So, so I quickly moved into coffee. But the like how I approach a lot of things, I really kind of drill down, and I have to go through the whole process of learning and different processes and and tasting. And but the more I tasted the more I realized that coffee is just as complex, if not more, than, like, than fine teas. And um, I was just really lucky to work with serious coffee professionals, like people who were trying to make a career out of coffee as opposed to this is just a job in a coffee shop that they have. Right. Let's step backwards a little bit because we were talking about the idea that you had initially to open a tea shop and then you kind of backtracked and decided that you were going to do coffee. But... Before this was even an idea in your head, you worked uh, in banking and finance. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your, I guess, maybe let's call it your past life in that industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at what point? Yeah, let's call it let's call it a past life. Um, <laughs> I know that I like to look at my life, which is a little silly. Um as almost like two chapters and it's pre and post coffee. And it's not even really about coffee itself, but it's just about like me as a person, um, which I know that we're going to dig into. Um, So I was wondering, yeah, tell me about that pre-life. Tell me about the, but tell me about Nigel's life before coffee. Uh, Nigel, (laughs) Nigel was a totally different person. You know, as I alluded earlier, um, a lot of the, um, a lot of the, I guess you would call it a lot of, um, I don't know if that's a good word, but where I am now in terms of the way I, the way I thought about life and the way I thought about relationships and just people in general, um, is just so skewed. And I, I, I really attribute that to, I worked, you know, I went to school with a lot of people who were antisocial would be an, an understatement. They were just very, um, uh, Un, 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 empathetic, mm-hmm. yeah, towards people's feelings or what what um, what other people's needs were, even the approach to business. It was never from the perspective of the consumer or the workers. It was almost always from the perspective of dollars and cents and profitability or not. And um. And I guess a lot of that got imparted on me because I 
felt like this is how I need to conduct myself if I'm going to work with these people, or if I'm going to work in this industry. And I think the struggle I had with not liking my job, because quite frankly, the money was great, but I just was not happy. I didn't know what it was, but I knew something was missing. Um, if you, you know, if you dread going to work as much as I did, it has to be something else. And it wasn't until I started asking those kind of tough questions. And then I realized that I'm going to have to find an alternate course <laughs> and right. it can't just all be about money, which my sole purpose for studying finance and studying um, economics was because in my mind, what's more important than making money? You know, Right. And it seems um, like that perspective was totally normalized for you completely. in the banking world and in the educational systems that you were in. Exactly. exactly. I was going to ask what prompted you to even start asking those questions of yourself? Because I, I have to imagine that that's hard to, to challenge, essentially challenge your entire worldview. Well, you, you know, I don't think it was like one specific instance. It would be someone would in, you know, after work, everybody would go for drinks. And, you know, for the most part, everybody on the outside looked like they were extremely happy and they were enjoying themselves. But I absolutely hated it. I just did not enjoy that environment. It got to a point where I just didn't enjoy it. But it was one of those things I had to do because you don't want to be the weird guy that doesn't hang out with everybody else. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, I want, yeah, it wasn't one specific thing. It was, it was a combination of a lot of different instances where I just realized that, and also this is over the span of more than a decade mm-hmm. um, of being in situations and being in like sitting down with people that I just didn't enjoy being around. I worked, I had a manager I worked with for six mm-hmm. years. Um, I worked at Chase and then they merged with uh, JP Morgan and became JP Morgan Chase. And I moved over with him. So we, we were together for my entire tenure at, um, at JP Morgan. And I, I didn't know one single thing about his life. Like he would come in and in, in, in the, after the weekend and he would say, Hey, how was your weekend? Good. And say, Oh, how was your weekend? Good. Like we would never have any serious in-depth conversations about anything. That's, other than the work. That's so unsettling. Which, and again, and I, I, I know I keep saying this over and over, but the Nigel I was in unit, like during university and like coming out of college and like uh, a lot of these like training positions that I had, that was perfectly, in my mind, I was perfectly okay. Like, I don't need to get to know you. I'm here to, to do a job. I'm here to make money and that's it. But a part of me, a part of me got to a point where I was like, I cannot work or be around people that I'm not connected to, or I don't have a genuine connection with. Was it obvious that opening your own business would be the way to solve that problem? Like, I, I, it's an interesting jump to me. And I wonder like how, how you went from, I need to get out of this to this is the thing I'm going to do next. It wasn't. It wasn't until working in uh, in cafe settings mm-hmm. um, for other people 
I mean, I kind of always knew I was going to do my own thing. Initially, it was supposed to only take maybe, <laughs> maybe six months. I don't know how it just sounds super arrogant now, but I was like, oh, a couple months I'll work in some coffee shops and then I'll just open my own, do my own thing. But um, it was working in cafes. Um, the people I worked with, a lot of the guests that would come into a lot of these places, and I would just listen to people and we would have like in-depth conversations. And some of these people, I didn't even know their names. And, but we would talk about life and, you know, spirituality, uh, what you actually want to do with your life, not what you do for a living or what you do to make money, but what do you want to do with your life? And these are questions that I just never pondered myself. So it was very interesting to hear people. And unfortunately, a lot of these people were, were young, a lot younger than I was, but they already were in that mind space. I like that you articulated that because I felt some of that same anxiety too when I first started working in coffee, honestly, because um, I had a very similar experience to you where oh. I defined my life in kind of these two phases of this was my career before and now I work in coffee. And I remember, mm-hmm. I don't know if this is the right analogy for it or if this is the right way to describe it, but I remember, I feel like I remember so much of my life in the last 10 years than I ever did of the 20 something before that, because it feels like I'm actually living it. Like I am physically in a space and I'm interacting with what's around me versus, you know, right. Yeah. Going through the motions or being, or almost being like out of body in a way. It's like, who's that person doing those things? Like, that's not me, but it is, it's you. And, (laughs) and I remember being almost mad about it being like, what took me so long to get here? Like, did you feel that at all? Not only did I feel that, but I actually, but I don't get upset about it because I just think about the amount of people in this world currently who don't even realize that that is another place to be. Like, they haven't even come to the realization. Like, I I mean, I would, sometimes I, I cringe thinking about, wow, what if I never, you know, took that leap of faith and said, you know what, I'm just going to do something else. Yeah. <laughs> and um and it's not like I had a ton of money to to kind of to rest on, which is another an, another regret that I kind of I kind of wish I did do a better job of saving money or maybe just sticking it out for a few more years so I can actually save some money because um I had no idea how <laughs> how financially uh burdensome it can be trying to work in coffee shops where you're really not being paid a ton of money and you're still trying to save money and pay bills, you know, so. Tell me about that first coffee shop job that you got. What do you think were some of the biggest shocks or realizations that you had in that first job? I, I would have to, I would have to reiterate what I, like what I, what I mentioned earlier, the actual connections with people. Um, and again, I was I still feel like even at that point I was um I was still apprehensive about like you know dealing with people one on one and like um having these kind because of, in my head I'm like, hey, I'm just gonna make you this coffee, you're gonna pay for it, and then you're gonna leave, and then I'm gonna play with the espresso machine and I'm gonna learn what I need to learn so that one day I could open my own coffee shop. Um but I do feel like 
with the exception of um, one one or two bad managers, every place I've worked, even if the shop itself wasn't run really well, I learned a lot about what to do and what not to do. Like it was all, it was never a wait. I never felt like I was wasting my time. Right. Um, it was a few times where I actually would be working at two different shops at once, but um, I was never ex- like I was, uh, not, not the right word. I was never um, beat down or felt like I was carrying some burden because I, I I approached it from the perspective of I need to learn this, I need to get this, and again, like I mentioned, I work with some people like that I'm still in contact with to this day. You know, rather they went to like start like green buying or roasting or or even if you know they just are still baristas like they're still like actual coffee professionals and I owe a lot of my career to to some of these guys. You mentioned that you thought it would take you six months to learn all you needed to know (laughs) before opening a coffee shop. How long did it actually take you, or how long did you work in shops before you took the leap to open your own space? It took more like six or seven years, really. Um, but unfortunately, I wasn't necessarily ready financially. Yeah. So I ended up, you know, sticking it out for another four or five years. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're talking like 11, 12 years after leaving, you know, corporate. And finally, finally well, deciding honestly, to take the next yeah, step. Yeah. And honestly, it probably would have taken a little longer. I kind of got lucky because um, my last job was in, it was, um, well, my last main job uh, was in a hotel. It was like a union job. They paid almost like 30 plus dollars an hour, plus tips and benefits and everything like that. So if I didn't have that job and I was still trying to kind of, put it together little by little with um, two and three different barista jobs, I probably wouldn't have been able to open at all. So at what point did you decide that you felt maybe not ready? Ready is probably not the right word, but at least (laughs) what was the moment where you were like, okay, I'm going to try to do this thing on my own. I'm going to go ahead and try the thing that I set, I set myself up to do almost a decade ago. (sighs) I think the I think the main catalyst was I had an I was being um a lot of those positions were being like eliminated and a lot of these hotels specifically for unions they were trying to like um there was really no nice way to say it but so they was really trying to like like basically like kick these like union pinching guys off their out of their jobs and it got to a point they said, well, we can put you in this pool and we'll figure out, we'll try to find you another position in another hotel. Or you could take, I think they would, they would pay you a certain amount depending on how many years you were in the union. So like, you basically take a package and you leave. And I was like, you know what? I think this is it. Why a cart uh, first? The card, I think I just wanted to, I wanted to kind of prove the concept. I wanted to see if people would gravitate towards just pour over coffee, if people had a problem waiting 
three, four minutes, five, you know, sometimes five minutes for a cup of coffee. And if there was an appetite for it, really, mm-hmm. uh, I think um, if it wasn't for that card, I don't. I think if I just went right to opening a shop, I don't know if it would have. Um, people would have really understood what I was trying to do. I think I would have just been another coffee shop with some pour over, <laughs> with some pour over drippers in it. I think the card, one kind of made it where I'm kind of putting my flag in the sand and I'm saying, this is what drip stands for. And um, luckily it worked. Luckily it worked. I was thinking about what you said earlier about having this idea to open a coffee shop and then you were going to work in a coffee shop for six months. Obviously that extended to 10 years. Um, (laughs) And then you opened the cart and I'm wondering, so you have almost these like three distinct phases of what drip coffee could have looked like in your brain. You had the first iteration back when you were thinking about leaving your finance job, you have the second iteration, maybe right before you open the cart. And then the third iteration I'm imagining is the transition from the cart to a physical space. How has your business plan or your vision changed over time? You know, I wish I could say I had this grand master plan, <laughs> but I really didn't. I just know, especially the last four, five, six years of working in coffee, like I said, I had like my quote unquote nine to five, which was the hotel, but I always, almost always moonlighted because there was a ton of like really, really cool specialty shops in the city that. I wanted to work at, you know, a lot of them were like Stumptown accounts and counterculture accounts. Um, but they, you know, a couple of them were a lot of independent shops and I just really loved what they was, they were doing. But what I took away from a lot of these shops was they would offer pour overs, but it was always an afterthought. It almost, it was almost one of those things where if you were a barista and you were on bar all day and someone ordered a pour over, you would immediately get angry, one, because now you have to break your flow to make this pour over. Um, And that's when it kind of dawned on me. I was like, but that's the best way to have a cup of coffee. So I'm like, instead of building a shop around just the espresso machine, you can kind of build the shop around the pour overs, whereas it doesn't necessarily break the workflow for the barista on bar. And, um, yeah, even you just saying a customer comes in and orders a pour over <laughs> hearkens in me a feeling <laughs> that I thought that I didn't have anymore. Um, but I'm like, oh my God, why'd you order a pour over? Like there's seven people behind you. Like what's going on? Right. Exactly. But, you know, but in, in, in another thing is I could easily be that person in line because I I just really love pour overs, but I almost always would never get what I wanted because as knowing what that barista is going through, I just wouldn't order it. And I was like, you know, I was was like, I think it would be cool if you made, if you integrated pour overs into the service. Right, right. Which is something that is so great, especially because like, like we were both mentioning, like we've both been baristas 
we both have been the barista who gets that order for a pour over which interrupts <laughs> service but you've also been the barista who like on your saturday yeah off yep. what who am i kidding yep. saturday's not off your tuesday <laughs> off um you're you go to another coffee shop to go visit your friend and you're like oh i'm not ordering a pour over like i don't want to i don't want to fuck with their yeah. shit because yeah. you know what that's yeah. like but that's actually the thing that you want um which is a really it's 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 really cool to take a step backwards and say like how do i design a system where this is front and center versus yeah. this is a throwaway thought on a menu yeah exactly um and we were talking a little bit about how um because you've worked in new york coffee for over a decade i worked in new york coffee um a little like like around the 2010 era and i think that you've seen the shifts in coffee and the way that new york coffee shops have approached just trends in general like in the early 2010s you know pour overs were a really big deal and then towards i think my tenure in new york it was like we were trying to eliminate that. We were like, it's all about batch brew. Yeah. It's all about fast yeah. efficiency. Um, so I was wondering like how, as as you worked in coffee and saw these different things kind of come and go, like what did you, what were you excited about and what were you kind of bummed about? Because it feels like we never, just, we just never really incorporated pour overs, right? Never, never. And I think, like you mentioned, that's when I started realizing that I'm going to try to build a model around the pour overs. I really still didn't really have a clear, concise way in which I was going to do it, but um, I, I really still don't. <laughs> but but um, I knew that was going to be my niche, so to speak. Uh, once a lot of these shops started going, well, yeah, you can get really good quality with Batch Brew too, I immediately kind of pushed back on that because typically it was a lot of these, um, you know, people who were coffee geniuses but i also realized that they were now coffee shop owners and they're trying to think of ways to streamline business or they're trying to think of ways to not necessarily have three people on because they're thinking about labor costs you know i've had i've had owners say things like you know if he's doing this pour over, how is he going to empty the trash or how is he going to wipe the tables or how is he going to do dishes? And in my, in the back of my head, I'm like, it's a coffee shop. This is not a, you hired well-trained quality baristas to make coffee, not to wipe tables, not to, <laughs> not to do the dishes. So if I'm paying you to make coffee, I want to situate, I want, I want to create an environment, a situation where you do really don't lose focus on anything. Like your main focus is the coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, I think now I, I kind of, I'm lucky enough to be in spaces where I'm lucky enough to have people who want to work as coffee professionals. And this is not just, I just need a job while I do X or I need a job while I do like, the people that work that that I have working with me now love coffee to the point where they bring in their own coffee, they bring in their own equipment. You know, they're trying things that to, even when the shop closes, they sometimes they all they all meet up there. Like it's it became exactly what I envisioned it to be, which is a space for people who want to learn more about coffee, a place for them to 
feel comfortable about it, but not be in a sense where it's unappro like unapproachable to the layman or unapproachable to the person who doesn't know much. He may make a he may make a French press or make make a pour over at home, but he wants to learn more about it. I love that because I feel like for so long, and I know that I've especially felt this in my coffee career, there were times where I felt like liking coffee wasn't cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean though? Yeah. Like to like nerd out on like coffee, coffee was like not was like not encouraged sometimes. And like I feel like, you know, I maybe started my career as that barista who would like bring in their own coffees and be like, let's try this, let's do that. But then there was a time where I felt like, oh, this is not a thing that I should care about. I should care about efficiency. I should care about, you know, just like making money. And I have to yeah. imagine for someone whose background was in finance, like that had to be like an interesting kind of dichotomy to balance. Like, how do you make a profitable business, a responsible business, but at the same time, something that feels true to what you want? You're like, I want to invest in pour over. I care about pour over coffee. How do I make this work? And therein lies the, the, the dilemma. Um, ultimately, like you said, if you're not making money or you're not, you know, profitable, you're not going to be in business for long. Um, so, you know, like I, I think I was just telling somebody this this morning, the first build out, the, the location in Bushwick, I built the space out so that it can quickly, like if I had to close <laughs> the shop, that it would literally take a day to kind of just disassemble everything and just walk away. Mm -hmm. I was not planning on like the, the long term. Like I'm just now I'm talking to the, the individuals who built out my second location about now going back to Bushwick and doing a proper build out because, okay, it's, it's working. You know, we, we're going to be in business for a while. So I should probably, you know, set things up correctly. Um, but I, you know, I make no, like, um, <laughs> I make no, like, I had no idea if it was going to work or not, you know, I, but I did know that I'm either going to do it right or I'm not, not going to do it at all. Well, it just seems like you were very concept driven, like you knew what your concept was going to be yeah. and you designed the space to address that. So like, I was even looking at pictures of drip coffee makers before we hopped on and I was like, oh, you can see. <laughs> <laughs> the pour overs, they're right there. They're in yeah. front and they are facing the customer. Therefore, as a barista, I do not have to turn my back and <laughs> go make a pour over, which was the setup at a lot of the cafes that I worked at um, versus other cafes where this was um, actually like a really ingenious move. The espresso machine was right next to the register. So if I was steaming milk, I could ring up a customer. Yep. And I was like, oh, well, this yep. makes sense for an espresso forward cafe. But I've worked yeah. in, again, a hundred cafes where the pour over bar is like somewhere else, um, which doesn't make sense if you want to invest in pour overs or if you want people to celebrate it or see it or be excited about it. Right. I mean, it was a lot of trial and error, even even something as simple as dialing in coffees, um, having them pre-dosed. Uh, I wanted to get it down to three men, three minutes, three and a half minutes. I didn't want it to be longer than the time it takes to make a latte. Mm -hmm. um, because in my head, I was like, if you can get people used to waiting their three minutes for, you know, the espresso with steamed milk, 
then if they really enjoy pour overs, they'll wait the two to the three minutes, three and a half minutes for their pour over. Right. And it takes mm-hmm. that intentional type of thought, like, oh, this is a timed event. Like people might not exactly. be used to waiting a certain amount of time, but maybe they're used to waiting, you know, like you said, three and a half minutes for a latte. So how can I make those two experiences, one that people are familiar with, one that people maybe aren't as familiar with, um, as easy to understand as possible? Exactly. And after spending a summer with that cart and noticing that people had no problem waiting because they know what you do, they know you're doing something special. They know this is not you know, generic. They know you're doing something, you know, that is away from what they typically would get in a coffee shop. They, the waiting part becomes a part of the, you know, a part of the show. You know? Right. Right. Especially because you're facing them. So you can talk about what you're exactly. brewing. You can discuss, exactly. you know, whatever's happening in the day. And and like you, I think I was reading that article that you were interviewed um, for Taste and something that you said um, that really resonated was about value and how value is created. And you're literally through the physical choices that you make or the way that you're talking about coffee, creating value and people will buy into that as long as you create that option for them to buy into it. Right. Right. One thing that, uh, is kind of miraculous in the face of all of this is that you opened your brick and mortar location. What? Two months (laughs) before COVID hit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So what was that experience like for you? Did you stay open throughout the pandemic? I stayed open throughout. I mean, I set the, it's funny because I would always jokingly say, um, when I first opened, I put on the door, the front door every day, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And, you know, throughout throughout the pandemic, I couldn't hire anybody. I think legally in New York, you couldn't make somebody come to work, but you can keep your business open if you were the owner. So the only way I could stay open is if I was the only one working there. Um, and people would, you know, people would come in and they'd be like, Hey, you know, nobody would be mad at you if you closed a little early or if you left a little early or if you didn't open every day. And I'm like, I already put it on the door. I can't, I got to show up. <laughs> but, um, it, it was, it was a lot of things that kind of happened that I feel happened, I guess, just, uh, just out of good, just good karma or just good timing or just a unit, like all the stars were aligned. I, that location is literally, it's maybe two or three blocks from a train station, but it's on around the corner on a pretty residential block. And that's probably why I got such a good deal on the, on the rent. Mm -hmm. And so initially, you know, going back to my, quick escape in case the brick and mortar didn't work. I was like, you know what? I'll be on the sleepy block. It won't be too busy. I can, you know, to me, this was supposed to be the next step up from the cart where I'm just going to kind of keep proving this concept to see if it actually works. Um, But because we were on that residential block, when the mandate came down and people stopped going into the office, I had a captive audience. I had, you know, two, three, four block radius of people who 
needed to get out of the house. There was literally nothing, <laughs> nothing else opened. Um, it was a juice bar that served coffee, but no one went there for the coffee. Um, and, you know, like I said, like I mentioned earlier, I think people needed an outlet. They needed to, you know, take a walk. And um, I didn't realize how much I needed it until after, <laughs> until after things started to settle down and open back up a bit. And I wasn't in the shops as much as I was. I would, you know, I would still wake up in the morning. I would still go to the shop and I would just kind of sit around <laughs> right. and talk to people as they came in. Um, I didn't, you know, I'm, I thank God for it because I really believe that during, during COVID in its peak, a lot of it, I kind of got to ignore because I was completely inundated with keeping the doors open and keeping the lights on at the shop. And by the time I got home, I was too exhausted to really pour over the news way a lot of people did. And like, just thinking of the death toll and the amount of people who were, you know, losing their livelihoods and their jobs and family members. I could, I, like, when I think back on it now, I, I could just easily see how that, how somebody can slip into a, a super dark place. One thing that I have to imagine the pandemic kind of proved to you, and maybe you knew it just, just based on, on your dedication to pour over coffee, or maybe this came afterwards, but I have to imagine that the power of connection and the power of connecting over Absolutely. a cup of coffee just really became crystal clear to you. Absolutely. And yeah, tell, yeah, tell me about that experience, about what it was like to serve coffee to people during a time when a lot of people couldn't connect with most other people. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I alluded to earlier, you know, coffee was probably the reason why they started <laughs> coming. But it easily and it was so blatant so obvious that you know and for myself as well it was so obvious that people needed to connect on a physical level with other human beings you know um i think i spent so much more time <laughs> uh talking and uh counseling people <laughs> And not necessarily telling people what they need to do, but just giving my opinion on what they could do or what they should do if they needed X, Y, you know, a Z. Um, that, again, I was able to talk myself out of despair because I had this extended family of people that I had to show up for. It was as difficult as it sounds. Like, I mean, looking back on it now, I think it I think it would be difficult for me to now start that up again. But I, ca I can't remember one morning where I had difficulty getting up out of bed to get to work. Like, as I felt obligated. Like, I have to be there. You know, like, I have to be there for these people. But, yeah. But you did it. Yeah, when, when anytime I speak about it, I start getting emotional because it's just such a... Um, you know, going back to old Nigel in the past life is just um, to see what type of person I am now is just it's it's, it's an amazing it's amazing. <laughs> it's 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 really I think it's really special to to get that opportunity to almost live two two separate lives. 
Um, I don't, like you were saying earlier, I don't think a lot of people get to experience that. So, so to see your life in these like two very different planes is, I don't know. I have that same thought a lot of like what would have happened to me if I had never quit teaching, if I had accepted that this was going to be the path that my life was going, if I didn't get to know me. Um, and I think about that a lot too. And I think about it, especially in these moments of like testing the choices that you've made or testing the limits of your potential. Um, I don't know. I, I totally, I totally get where you're coming from. And I'm really happy that, um, that other people have experienced this because it is like, just, it's just really cool. Sometimes it's scary, but it's really cool. Um, I was wondering too, um, this is maybe a little more like tactical versus emotional, but do you think that these last 18 months have kind of proven the value of like pour over coffee to people? Because I can imagine now that people are so excited to get something special at a place that like, they're like, yeah, I'll wait four minutes for a pour over. Cool. Great. Right. And it's an affordable luxury. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those things where it, you know, it's, it's not like a fancy dinner. It's, you know, a fancy cup of coffee. The, the team that I have of these like coffee professionals, people, they, they look forward to coming and seeing these guys the same way they, they came. They look forward to coming to see me. Um, I spent all morning at the shop and I've spoken to people who were, you know, who were given, uh, <laughs> you know, given a sign to go meet someone like one of the baristas would say, Hey, I know somebody who's selling cameras. If you want to start taking pictures or, Oh, I know someone who plays guitar and they're looking for, you know, they're looking for someone to play a gig and, and the coffee shop, it didn't lose its actual purpose, which is to con- for people to meet and connect. But, um, to have them connect around really, really good coffee to me is, um, is, is, is important. It's just tantamount. It's nice to have a good space, but it's also even better if you are getting what you paid for, so to speak. Is there anything that you'd want people to know about you listening to this episode? No, nothing in particular. Just, um, just that I'm somebody who found what they love doing. And as corny as it sounds, that should be everybody's goal in life, no matter what that thing is. Um, one of, um, one of my, my guests started making jewelry during quarantine and we, you know, she would come in and she would joke about it. You know, she's like, Oh, it's just something I need to do to take my mind off of what's going on around me. And within six, seven, eight months, she has like this ridiculously crazy big following on Etsy and she made a business out of it, you know? Um, and this is just from finding something you enjoy doing and just pursuing it with a passion. Uh, I always feel like the money or the success will come as long as you chase your passion. Well, Nigel, thank you so much for taking time to chat with me. I really appreciate it. Well, Thank you. I appreciate you um, asking. That was Nigel Price. 
founder of Drip Coffee Makers in New York City. You can find out more about Drip Coffee by following them on Instagram at dripcoffeenyc. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. I'm just looking for a better day. Boss Barista is produced by me, Ashley Rodriguez. You can find a transcription of this episode on my newsletter, along with an accompanying article about this episode every Thursday at bossbarista.substack.com. To support the show, you can visit www.patreon.com slash bossbarista. We have over 80 patrons supporting the show right now, which is incredible. And that helps keep the show alive. We pay guests through this fund, we pay for website hosting, and we make donations. Half of our patron donations are currently pledged to five different nonprofits, each at $50 a month. Asada's Daughters, the Loveland Foundation, the Native American Rights Fund, the Grocery Run Club, and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Again, if you want to support Boss Barista, consider making a monthly donation at www.patreon.com slash bossbarista. Another amazing way to support the show is to share this episode with just one person, a friend, someone who you think would learn something from this episode, anybody. Sharing on social media is also a huge help, along with giving us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. As a small production, these things matter a lot. So if you can take a little time, share out some of your favorite quotes from this episode, and tag us, that would be amazing. We're at Boss Barista Podcast on Instagram and Boss underscore Barista on Twitter. You can also send me an email at bossbaristapodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.